You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Doug Robbins. Yeah, welcome to church today, whether you're worshiping online or here in the room. Anybody besides me just mega happy to be worshiping God today? Anybody? Yeah, that's it. It's a good day to worship the Lord. And you know, if you're new with us on the stream or here in the room, we've been in the midst of this series called 21 Days of Prayer. We do it every year as a church. And during the 21 days of prayer, we fast from different things. And so some people are going without meat or coffee or chocolate or social media or TV or Netflix or whatever. Some people are mixing up their fast and fasting from a number of things. Some people are doing without all food on certain days and uh, all kinds of different fasting because we're trying to focus in on God in prayer during this time. And one of the things that we've looked at in the scriptures as we've done Bible study together is we've seen this three-way intersection between the Holy Spirit, fire, and our prayers, and where we want to be is in the sweet spot in the middle of that, and we've looked at fires in the Bible, and a couple of weeks ago, we saw the judgment fires of God in the story of Isaiah in the Old Testament when he was called of God, and then last Sunday, we looked at the passionate fires of the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost in Acts in the New Testament of the Bible, and today, we're going to look at the fires of suffering. So I hope that there's something for everyone today, even if you're considering a relationship with God. Hopefully, it'll help you come to a deeper understanding of what that actually is all about. Um, And anybody besides me ever go through any trials in your life, just raise your hands online or in the room. If you've had a perfect life, just leave your hand down. It's all good with you. But um, the Bible has a lot to say to us about suffering And we're going to look at the classic story of the fiery furnace, just as you heard it read just moments ago. But the protagonists in our story today are these three Jewish guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If any of you ladies are pregnant, you're thinking about names for your kid, that's three options for you, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, (laughs) certainly great options. But uh, I want to show you four things today that we need to understand as we go into the fire's of this life. And the first one is this. We need to understand Babylon. We're going to take a look at ancient Babylon, but we're also going to look at the digital Babylon that we find ourselves in today. And so Babylon, I want you to understand how ancient Babylon worked is they were, they had a strong military and they would conquer all these different people groups and they would exile those people groups back in Babylon, and they would particularly take the beautiful people, the smart people, the competent people, they would take the best of the best from the countries that they would conquer, and they would bring them into Babylon, and then they would start assimilating them. And by assimilate, I mean they were trying to erase all the cultural beliefs, philosophies, and religions of these people that they would bring in. But they wouldn't just do it overtly. They would do it by bombarding them with all the philosophies of Babylon. So with this in mind, you got to understand that throughout the Bible, Babylon is kind of known as the anti-God kingdom. It's kind of a place where it's characterized by pride, power, prestige, 
and pleasure, that is Babylon. And one of the things that was significant to note about Shadrach, Meshach, and Zimbendigo's experience in Babylon is that they were being brought away from, taken away from their culture, uh, where their view of God was kind of at the central place. And they're being brought into an environment where their God was not in the cultural seat of power. So look at how Babylon operates in Daniel chapter 3. We're going to check out verses 1 and 6. So King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, and look at the numbers because they're significant, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Bible authors are very intentional about numbers. We're going to come back to that in just a minute, but look at the next verse. It says, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. How's that for tolerance, okay? They appeared to be this tolerant kingdom that they brought in all these different cultures, and they would allow them to keep their gods, but uh, they weren't very tolerant in the end, because if you didn't bow down, then you'd be thrown in the fiery furnace. But why was that? Well, if you go back and you look uh, in the first verse there, that the statue was 60 cubits high, six cubits wide. That number six is, is intentional. You see that in Bible stories all throughout the Old Testament. So, for example, if you go back and you look at, say, Goliath in the David and Goliath story, Goliath was six cubits tall. Uh, he, he had the spear, and the head of his spear weighed like 600 shekels, and then he had six fingers and six toes, so you see a lot of sixes there. Well, if you fast forward to Revelation at the end of the Bible, you would see the Antichrist's number is what? Six, 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 right? So what is this statue? Well, one of the hints here is that it's something demonic. It's something of the devil here. But what did the physical statue look like? What was the image of it? And for years, I just kind of assumed that it was probably another one of these, you know, countries where the emperor thought he was a god, and it was probably just an image of the emperor. That's what I assumed, but that's not actually what the text says, and history doesn't tell us about Babylonian kings who think that they're gods, and so uh, we get a hint as to what this image is in Daniel 3.14. Uh, look at that verse. It says, this is when the king's confronting them. It says, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, plural, or worship the image of gold that I've set up? So there's this connection between those, the gods of Babylon and the image that's been set up. So it's not one particular Babylonian god, but it's a representation of all the gods of Babylon. And so what Nebuchadnezzar would do is he would let people keep their God when they were conquered, but he didn't want any one group to have one God that they believed was the true God. He'd let everybody keep their God, but he said, but you also have to mix it together with all of the gods of Babylon. And so there's, this is a demonic statue. And so why, why would he do this? Well, he did that as a way to keep everybody at peace, to keep control of the kingdom. He made a real pluralistic kind of society where everybody could mix their gods together. And the only way that you were on the outs is if you believe your God was 
the true God. Now, the pluralism of Babylon sounds a whole lot like our culture today in some regards, does it not? And that's why I read this book recently that was fantastic. It's Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in the Digital Babylon. It's written by uh, the head of the Barna Research Group, David Kinneman and Mark Matlock. And Kinneman basically says there that um, because of our digital influences, we're now in the digital Babylon because the biggest cultural influence in our life is online. So Google, particularly to young people, serves as like a counselor. It serves as an entertainer, an instructor. It serves as sex ed. So why would a kid want to have an awkward conversation with a parent, with a pastor, with a school teacher when you can just ask your phone, right? But here's what you got to understand uh, about that. There's a rub here, is that quick information is not always accurate information. And information is not always wisdom. You can have information without wisdom sometimes. And I would agree with Dr. King, Martin Luther King, who said, we've allowed our technology to outdistance our theology. And for this reason, we find ourselves caught up with many problems. Our technology has gotten way ahead of where our theology is in our heads and in our hearts. And I think we need to rectify that. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were going from Jerusalem, where they'd been, to Babylon. I want to show you a chart that compares Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, on the chart, I'm not saying that everything in Jerusalem is good and everything in Babylon is bad. I just want you to understand the difference of where our three characters were and where they were going. So in Jerusalem, it was monoreligious, meaning there was one religion. In Babylon, it was pluralistic, many religions. The pace of life in Jerusalem was slower. In Babylon, it was accelerated and frenetic. Jerusalem was homogeneous. That is, there was one race there. Babylon was very diverse, many races. There was central control in Jerusalem. It was open source in Babylon. Life was sweet and simple in Jerusalem. It was complex and bittersweet in Babylon. The idols in Jerusalem would be religious pride and false piety. The idols in Babylon were fitting in and not missing out. And I believe that we're in the midst of, and the thesis of the book that I just referenced believes that we are in a transition from a kind of, a type of Jerusalem into a new form of Babylon, of plurality. And just uh, as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were going through reprogramming in their minds, I believe a lot of people are going through a lot of mental reprogramming through the digital Babylon. Um, you know, I want you to look at a, a chart, and it kind of shows what I would call a digital colonization that's going on. Look at the chart in the the black square in the bottom right-hand corner, which represents the time a typical 15 to 23-year-old spends per year taking in spiritual content. And the next biggest square, the light green square, is the time that a 15 to 23-year-old church-going person spends taking in spiritual content. But the big, massive green square is the time a typical 15 to 23-year-old spends on general screen time. And what this graphic is not showing, it's not saying that everything we take in on our phones or on our screens is evil or wrong, but what it's doing, it just pushes out what we should be focusing 
on, a big part of our hearts, lives, and mental energy has got to be spent on meditating on the things of God. Doesn't the Bible teach us the word to meditate on these things day and night as much as possible, right? We need to be thinking about spiritual things. And what happens is the digital Babylon just bombards us with so much, uh, so many other things, so many other thoughts vying for our attention and mental capacity that it pushes out the things of God. Um, Digital Babylon is also blurring the lines between what's true and real. That's why we have these terms like truthiness, fake news, post-truth, alternative facts, because we just don't know who to believe anymore, right? We don't know which sources are reliable sources that are telling us the truth or what's accurate. Digital Babylon is shaming, canceling, marginalizing people who believe in Jesus. In a lot of influential places, Christ followers are experiencing increasing levels of hostility from their peers, from some college professors, not all, and certainly by social elites who are canceling athletes or musicians or actors and actresses who don't tow the Babylon line, if you know what I mean. Well, uh, I learned a lot about ancient Babylon as well as the current Babylon that we live in from uh, Dr. Tim Keller. He's an author uh, pastor and professor, and I'm going to share with you a lot of things that I learned from him. One of the things he helped me to see is that Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon believed that there couldn't be peace in his kingdom if one people group thought that their religion was the true religion or that their God was the only true God, because he believed it would cause uh, tension in the kingdom, if there was one group of people that wouldn't get on board with the plurality of religions in the kingdom. So in a sense, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were scared of the Jewish God followers because they believed in one God. And that's what's taking place today, is that a lot of people in our modern culture are afraid of Christianity. People like the author uh, uh, where is it? It's open society and its enemies. His name is Karl Popper. And he believes in, uh, anyone who believes your God is the truth, it leads to totalitarian behavior or like controlling dictators. And many people in our culture believe that it's arrogant to try and convert people or to try and, as they would say, proselytize people to your points of view. And if you feel this way, I think Dr. Keller, Keller would challenge you to think about your thinking on that. Because if you believe that it's intolerant to try and convert people, you've actually already been converted to something. You've been converted to something that's called expressive individualism, which believes that it's wrong to try and convert people. And you're now trying to convert the people that are trying to convert you to a different way. And I think what's happening here is that everybody, if we get honest, is trying to proselytize. Even atheists are trying to convince people that their point of view is right. It's just Christians are honest about it. Can't we just be honest about it that we all are trying to persuade people to our way of thinking? So on the outside, the cultural pluralism of our day appears to be very tolerant. But if you drill down and look in the inside of it, it's actually not very tolerant at all because it's not tolerant of Christ-following people. But on the outside, Christianity looks like it's intolerant, doesn't it? Because of some of the guidelines for living in the Bible, people think that that's 
intolerant. But if you drill down into Christianity, you will see it's actually more tolerant, particularly because of a theological concept called common grace, where the Bible teaches us that God sends his rain and sunshine on the just and the unjust alike, and that all human beings are made in the image of God and have value to God and thus have value to us as well, even if they disagree with God or the Bible. So if you still believe that Christians are just colonizers or trying to control or trying to create some totalitarian environment, I want to ask you a question. What is the one main truth that Christians believe? Well, that truth is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for people who oppose him, isn't it? Can you colonize a group of people? Can you control a group of people that you're dying for? No, you can't. Thus, Christianity is the most tolerant and the opposite of totalitarian. And I understand that some people throughout the years have used the name Christianity for their own selfish purposes. But that doesn't mean the truth of the scripture and who Jesus is and the movement that he created is in any way totalitarian. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they understood this. And that's why they were not hostile when they were called into the king and the king confronted them. They were calm and they were respectful and they were not violent. They didn't rise up or bow up in any way but with peace in their hearts, they just said, look, King Nebuchadnezzar, we cannot bow down to your image, your idol. And it led them into the fiery furnace. And look, whether or not you and I like it right now, we're in a time of a little bit of suffering, aren't we? And it may get worse. I don't know. It may get worse. And that's why we need to look into the fiery furnace today. King Nebuchadnezzar was so mad that he cranked up the heat seven times hotter. And some of us right now can feel the heat being cranked up on Christ's followers, can't we? We can feel the encroachment. We can feel the microaggressions and the direction that our culture may be headed. And the fiery furnace today, I believe, can be the fiery trials of today, can be both our normal suffering Some of you have suffered loss, haven't you? You've lost a loved one. You've lost a job. You've lost a relationship. Some of you are mourning the loss of the way things used to be. Those are just the sufferings of this world. They're going to happen to everyone. Jesus says, in this world, you'll have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world, haven't I? But the, the fire can also be, in addition to just the normal suffering in this world, it can be the persecution and marginalization of people who believe there's one God and people who believe in Jesus Christ. So we see the anti-Christian bias continuing to heat up. Um, Christ followers are gonna be canceled by the cancel culture and may possibly experience persecution. And if you're willing to buck up to the trials of the day, just regular suffering, or the digital Babylon, receive a little bit of encouragement now from Peter, who knew a thing or two about suffering. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for just a little while, 
you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. See, there are all kinds of trials. But in verse seven, he says, these have come. Here's the purpose of it. These have come that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though it's refined by the what? The fire there, right? May result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so the fire reveals the genuineness of your faith. And the Bible says, to know the genuine, genuineness of your own faith is actually more valuable than gold is. It shows you what's really in there. It shows you if you're a poser, if you're the real deal, if you're willing to suffer. Pastor Lee and I used to do some training of pastors in Russia. And one of the pastors there in Russia who had gone through some of the training his name was Pastor Valentin, and he is pictured here on screen. You can't see in the picture, but he's missing three fingers. And he was asked, you know, Pastor Valentin, what happened to your fingers? Well, the KGB came when he would teach about Jesus. And each time they would come and visit, they would cut off another finger. And then he was asked, well, Pastor Valentin, why did they quit hassling you? And he said with a smile, because I guess they figured I only had seven more fingers left. See, that's a guy who's willing to stand up to the Babylons of our world, even if he has to suffer. Are there still Christians like that now who are willing to suffer for Christ or all the Christians in America, just people that want to come to church and make you feel good, make you feel better about who you are. Well, I think if we look at the Bible, we'll see that it may require some suffering of us. And as some of you know, um, you know, church might change if the authorities kept coming in here and cutting people's fingers off who listened to teaching about Jesus or who were willing to speak up about Jesus. I think we would find out who the posers are, and who is real in their faith. And we know that persecution of Christians is increasing around the world. Some of you saw just a few years ago the 21 martyrs that were taken by ISIS and beheaded because they were Christ's followers. Um, as they were being killed, these martyrs just kept saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. So what would you do if the knife was put to your neck? Would you continue to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ? I saw a book that looked at the impact of these 21 martyrs in their community. And the book is entitled The 21, A Journey into the Land of Coptic Martyrs. And it was written by a German novelist and poet, Martin Mosenbach. And he interviewed family members of the men who were killed. And they blew his mind because he thought that they would be sad and mourning in the loss. And certainly there was some authentic pain from the loss. But he said there was no lamentation, no mourning, no pity, but instead pride and happiness. Isn't that a surprise that they lost these people, but yet there was happiness. They said that their faith 
grew. The courage in their hearts grew from seeing these men die. Their church started to grow. And an odd thing happened. The Egyptian government never does this, but they invested half a million dollars to build them a new church in honor of these Coptic Christians, the 21 martyrs. So their church grew. How's that for a church growth strategy? 21 of us go get beheaded for our faith in Christ, you know? And I think it's true what the early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I don't think that this type of movement happens just with slick church services and fancy programs at the church, but with people who have hearts that are on fire for God, that they're willing to go through the fire for God because of their faith in him. And the 21 martyrs, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were men of resilience. And that's what we want to be is people of resilience. Back to David Kinnaman in the book, Faith for Exiles, just for a minute, um, I want to uh, kind of explain what Barna does. They're researchers, so they take these massive surveys to, and they're just kind of sharing data on the state of the church in America most of the time. And over the past 10 years, most of the work that they've done is about younger generations and how younger generations are bailing out on church by the droves, right? You hear that all the time, and they would show you the data behind it and why it's happening. And so they decided to look into what about the, the younger Christ followers that are all about it? What's their secret? What about the resilient young Christ followers that they call resilient disciples that have a vibrant faith, that they don't just fall away when things get hard. They stick to their faith, and they have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. What's their secret sauce? Well, he found five practices of resilient disciples, and I want to show them to you today. Number one, to form a resilient identity, experience intimacy with Jesus. So resilient disciples have this intimate relationship with God. It's not just worshiping on Sunday, but it's worship as a lifestyle all week long, you know? It's like practicing the presence of Jesus. He's here with me. I'm talking to him all the time, but look at practice number two. In a complex and anxious, uh, anxious, anxious age, develop the muscles of cultural discernment. What this means is like you're going to the Bible and you learn how, even though it's an ancient book, it applies to your life today and how you can apply it in the way that you live. It also helps you as a grid to discern all the messages that you're being bombarded with from the digital Babylon to know what worldview is behind those messages that are coming in. But look at number three. When isolation and mistrust are the norms, forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. This means I go to church and I'm not just hanging out with the old people or uh, hanging out with the middle-aged people or just hanging out with the young people. It means uh, the younger are learning from the older and the older are learning from the younger. It's intergenerational community where we encourage each other. But look at number four, to ground and motivate an ambitious generation Train for what's called vocational discipleship. Vocational discipleship is when you see your career is not just a way to earn bucks. 
but it's a way where you can live out your faith, your life as a disciple. And you work with excellence. You're not just going to work every day preaching to everybody, but you're working with excellence so people care about what you say. You follow me? You work with excellence and you see your career and your work and your your specific um, skills and abilities and giftings as a means to serve. But look at the last one, number, uh, where was I? Number five, was that right? Curb entitlement and self-centered tendencies by engaging in countercultural mission. This means that, sure, I'm gonna live out my faith by my actions, but also I'm on mission in my life to share Jesus with other people because I've experienced the love of God. I've experienced the real God who's not some totalitarian dictator or you know, not some guy that's trying to control or harm people, but he's a loving Heavenly Father that loves me. I want them to know the real Jesus who cares about them and who heals them on the inside and gives them a great life now and eternity. That's what I want to share with other people. And all of this is why we're challenging you to become resilient disciples of Jesus. Please, 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 please don't just be those people that go sit in little soft chairs at church and just follow Jesus when it's comfortable for you or uh, when you feel like doing it, but be a resilient follower of Jesus who will stay the course, endure to the end, even when you're canceled, even when you feel the microaggressions coming your way, even when people may want to harm you. So... Look at Daniel 3.17. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But this next phrase is the one that just landed on me this week. I couldn't get away from. It says, but even if he does not... And I think there are a lot of Christians that love God as long as he delivers them. But what about the even if he does not part? We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And I hope that we're a people who when faced with the inevitable fires of this life will say, even if he does not save us in the temporary, we will not bow down to the digital Babylon. We will not. We don't care. We will not. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to make it through and they were willing to go into the fire. Because of number four, the fourth man in the fire. The fourth man in the fire. Remember what happened? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the, they're in the fire just chilling, right? It's all good. They don't even smell like they came out of a bar or anything like that. You know, they're, they're good to go. And look at what the king says in Daniel 3, 24. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look. I see four men walk around the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So who is the fourth man in the fire? It's kind of a mysterious character. 
And we see this mysterious character in other parts of the Bible too. We see him when Moses experienced the burning bush. Because the scriptures there don't say just an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. And by the way, in the Bible, angel just means messenger. So the messenger of the Lord. And when the messenger of the Lord was in the fire, or rather in the bush, he made the bush on fire. He made it burn. And then the Bible says the, the word of the Lord came from the bush after the angel of the Lord was in there. And then some of you remember that story when Joshua was about to go into battle and he sees this big warrior and he didn't recognize the warrior and he says, hey, who are you? Are you friend or foe? Are you on our enemy's side or are you on our side? And if you hadn't heard the story, basically what this big warrior said was, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Now, dude, you need to take off your shoes because you're on holy ground right now. Now, if you've done any study at all of angels in the Bible, angels will not receive worship. They're like, nope, don't worship me. Worship him. Worship God. But this particular angel received worship. Why? This messenger received worship. Why? Because he's the same one as the fourth man in the fire. That's Jesus. Jesus will go into the fire with you. He will. He was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I believe he'll be in the fire with you if you'll invite him, see? And Jesus is not the type to just control, but Jesus is the one who goes into the fire on your behalf for you. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's, you know, we know this because when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember that little detail where Jesus was sweating drops of blood? And it's because the door to the fire had been open and he could feel the heat because he was dying for me and for you on the cross and he's worth inviting into your life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to die for him because he's worth it. And this life is just a blip on the radar compared to eternity. That's why the 21 martyrs endured the pain of a few moments to receive rewards that are beyond our abilities to comprehend. And all of their willingness to suffer wasn't what earned them a relationship with God. They were willing to suffer because they already had a relationship with God, because they had already received a gift from the fourth man in the fire, Jesus. And you can receive that gift today. And I'm trying to demystify prayer because it is a conversation with God. But if you would just say in a little head-heart conversation that you have with Jesus right now, say, hey, look, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I invite you into my life. I want you in my life. And he comes in. But this next prayer is for those of us that want to be resilient disciples. And it's not for everyone. But some of us have beating in our hearts the fire of the Holy Spirit of God and we do not want to disappoint Him. We want to endure to the end no matter what suffering or fiery trials come our way. So we're going to put this next prayer on screen. As we put it up there, I want you to just kind of look at it for a minute. And like I said, this is probably not for everyone to pray. 
But if you're online watching, I'm going to ask you to do something bold and pray it out loud with us. It might sound funny to other family members who are roaming around your apartment or in your house. If you're in the room, I'm going to just say it out loud so much so that I can hear you through your little masks that you're wearing, right? So here we go. Just say it along with me as I lead us. Father God, if I'm thrown into the fire, I know you're able to save. But even if you don't, I will not bow down to Babylon. I know you'll save me in the afterlife. Holy Spirit, fill me now. Prepare me for the fire that I would have courage when trials come, that I would stay faithful to you as you are faithful to me. Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, amen. And my hope is that as you just prayed that, the fires of God were forged in you and that you made a pre-decision before the fiery trials come that will prepare you for a very hard day that could be coming up. That the authenticity of your faith just grew and that you will be among those who endure to the end that he will say to you, oh, I know it was tough daughter. I know it was tough, son, but well done, good and faithful servant. Receive a reward from me that, that your earthly mind can't even comprehend. So God, that's who we want to be. You've heard our words and we intend to stick to our commitments to you, that we would be resilient disciples who experience you in the fire. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing 21 Days of Prayer this Tuesday where we're having a special awakened service. You can experience it online or you can come here to the cameo. And I thought I'd let you know that Mer Meredith Maudlin is going to be here. She is one of the founders of Upper Room Church in Dallas or their music area. They've put out a lot of great Christian worship music. And so she's going to be here uh, doing some music and we're going to be doing some guided prayers and worshiping together. So we'd love to see you there if that would be helpful for you. Next Sunday, we're going to keep looking at fires in the Bible and we're going to look at the ashes of the fire because fire always burns something and creates ash, doesn't it? So we're going to talk about how that applies to our life and what that's all about next Sunday. Um, one of the things I want you to know is that resilient disciples are on mission with their resources as well. And that's why we pool together our resources here at City Tribe, and we challenge ourselves to look in the Bible, see the principles there of the first fruit, which is like it is a first priority um, tithe at the storehouse where people receive the gospel, come to faith in Jesus, have their whole eternities radically changed so that they will spend an eternity with God and Jesus forever. People are, have their lives on earth made better. Some people who are suffering, the under-resourced and those who, who are out of jobs are getting help with you know, resources, food, paying bills for them, all kinds of awesome things are happening. And here's how we get that done at City Tribe, in case you're new with this. One of four ways that you can donate here, you can send your offerings in the mail to the P.O. box number on screen. 
You can donate online at citytribe.church slash tithe, or you can text to tithe. Just text the, text the word tribe, space the dollar amount, press send to 74483, or you can uh, donate in person at the stations that are located near the exits. And when you uh, steward your resources today, man, just say a prayer as you push a button or drop something in a box or however you do it, and just say, Lord, please fully leverage this so that more people would become resilient disciples of yours. So if you're at home, stand up. If you're here in the cameo, uh, stand up. And if you're with a family member or something, put one arm around your family member and one arm out in the position to receive. Now, uh, if there's just some random person that you don't know standing next to you, don't touch them because we got to practice some common sense these days, don't we? Uh, We want to, you know, make sure and lower the curve. So Receive these words of benediction over you. I speak on you today, brothers and sisters, courage. I speak on you, even though I'm not a big voice, but I just speak on you the courage of the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit would flow in and through you, and you would have so much courage in the midst of persecution or the suffering of this world, and that in the midst of your personal fires, that you would experience the fourth man in the fire, our good Lord Jesus Christ, who intends to give you rewards beyond your wildest dreams. So go from here with your eyes focused on the fourth man in the fire, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you guys next Sunday. Bye now. We're glad you were part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.